Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I live in a part of Miami called Little Havana, not too far east of the I-95 overpass. And there's a guy who lived under I-95 until just recently, when some men from the city of Miami came out here with, with their hard hats and their fluorescent vests, and they went into the nook where he sleeps and they filled it with cement. The guy is tall, eloquent, very bashful. He talks to himself constantly, and he's rarely moving. He's usually just standing at some intersection within like a four block radius and just not moving and holding something and talking to himself. Most often, the thing that he's holding is a black keyboard that he carries around with him just about everywhere. And sometimes he sits at a bus stop and puts it on his lap and types on it in a very dexterous way. Like maybe in a previous life, he was pretty savvy with computers. I was once standing behind him in line at the gas station's little snack shop right between my apartment and I-95 as he was getting effusive and almost terrified with apologies um, both to the cashier and the store owner about the fact that he was one dollar short for a Gatorade. And like he put the Gatorade, he left the Gatorade on the counter and he put his hands on his chest and he just started backing up toward the door. And at first I thought it was sort of a, I don't know, a, a personality trait that he was so bashful and, and, and frightened, but then I got to thinking like, no, maybe given his life it's probably the case that he's been hassled by store owners and cops before it looks like he's he's got reason to be afraid of authority i remember when those dudes from the city were tossing his belongings out from the little hovel that he lived in uh, as they were getting ready to fill it with cement he was standing across the street maybe 50 yards away and he had his hands on his chest just like he did in the snack shop and he was just saying nothing kind of shifting his weight from one foot to the other and just watching There's a Papa John's right there on this side of the overpass, and he goes there every night at dusk and gets a free medium pizza. When he lived in the little hovel under the overpass, you would see those boxes piling up night after night, and you could tell they'd been stacked with great care. His beard and hair grow to a formidable shag after a while, but his eyes are forever glassy and wide and troubled and yellow and sad. He always looks very worried. But then sometimes, out of nowhere, I'll pass by him on my way to Passion in the morning, and he's wearing clean new clothes. And he's freshly showered, and the beard is trimmed, and his hair is clipped real close to his head. When I told my colleague about how this dude uh, randomly turns up looking fresh, she gave me some vague account of a service that apparently comes around in a van and offers to pick up homeless people and take them for a temporary stay at some nearby facility where they can get a shower and shave and some clothes. And I was, I'm thinking, like... is when he goes to the facility, is he given a pair of clippers and, you know, an hour in the bathroom and then just takes care of himself? Like, does he come out transformed kind of by his own hand? Is that possible? But I don't suspect that that's what happens. Most likely, I figure that after a quick shower that either he administers to himself or with a helping hand, somebody sits him down and gives him a haircut. I just watched a movie off the list called The Man Who Got His Hair Cut Short. It's a pretty good movie, but I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it. It's not really engaging but anyway we see the hero of that movie go for a long full treatment haircut in the first act with a shave and a hot towel and a massage and everything and his stoic gaunt kind of nimble fingered barber makes some interesting remarks over the course of that haircut 
about the nature of the barber's profession, the artistry of it. And I forget if it's the barber or the protagonist who makes a remark about the intimacy of the haircut, what they refer to as the flesh-on-flesh component. And I'm wondering about what that encounter is like for the barber and for the man who lives under I-95, who's homeless and eloquent and soft-spoken. Two people from radically different lives standing, as it were, flesh-to-flesh, while one helps the other look presentable for presentability's sake. It is, after all, so very human to be presentable. Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. Four or five times now, in the late morning at Pasión del Cielo, I've seen an elderly Cuban couple come and they sit together with espressos and sometimes empanadas or sandwiches, and, and they sit in the company of a younger, grown man. The younger man is maybe in his 50s. He's short and pouty with salt and pepper hair. He appears to be their son, and he's always restless, agitated. He slaps at his face and murmurs things. He turns his back to the older couple that he came with, and he gazes out the window with his chin on his palm. He lets out the loudest and most declarative sighs you've ever heard. When he talks to this quiet older couple, who I imagine are his parents, it isn't so much to converse with them as it is to belch out observations about his surroundings. He alerts them, for instance, to the sight of a dog, or a lady with a big hat, people in wheelchairs. Sometimes one of his uh, ostensible parents goes back up to the counter when their food is ready and brings it to him, and he takes it and he eats it with his mouth open. He talks and spills little flecks of sandwich out of his mouth, and sometimes his older companions gesture at his napkin, and they'll simulate a mouth-wiping gesture, and sometimes they don't. This man's obviously got some kind of intellectual handicap. It seems like he depends on this older couple to some extent. You can't look at him and think that he would function all that well if he were out in the world just fending for himself. And yet, every time I've seen him, he's clean-shaven. His hair is neatly cut and gelled and combed to the side. His clothes fit well, and they're always clean, unwrinkled. I look at the older couple, who appear to be his caretakers, and I wonder which of them tends to his hygiene. Does he comply with the routine in the mornings, or does he fight it off? How much of this does he manage for himself? If he is, in fact, getting help with all this sort of hygienic maintenance, do his parents perform it as some morning ritual that they hardly process anymore? Is it a task that they tend with loving precision, or just silent probity. You created it, ladies and gentlemen. You, at his request, started the March of Dimes so the little children might walk. Let us dedicate ourselves to the perpetuation of that cause. Let us honor the dead by serving the living. Keep those dimes rolling. Keep our children walking. Give, and keep right on giving. Brother, can you spare a dime? 
I saw a post recently, I forget where this was, but it was a photo set where a middle-aged woman was responding to somebody's argument about the futility of family bathrooms. She wrote before this photo set, this is why I need family or gender-neutral bathrooms. And then she attached some photos. So in these photos, she's at some kind of mall, and she's carrying a really big purse. Then she's going with her 20-year-old son, who has Down syndrome, into a large, gender-neutral family bathroom. Once inside, she locks the door, and she kneels down, and she sets her giant purse at her feet, and she pulls a full-size yoga mat out from the purse. Then she spreads the yoga mat out across the floor, and her grown son, Gleeful, lays down flat on the mat. He's assuming what is clearly a very practiced position. Looks like he's ready for takeoff. Down by his feet, his mom pulls from her gigantic purse a big, fresh, pristine diaper. And she holds it out to her side with one hand and reaches for her son's belt with the other. All through elementary and middle and high school, I kept the relative company of a kid named Paul. Paul had a learning disability. One of Paul's myriad eccentricities was that he would latch onto a phrase. It could be a sound or a sentence or, or just a noun. And he would repeat that phrase nonstop for years. His greatest joy was to go up to somebody and he would want to tell them to say it with him. Pizza Planet was one of the most endearing phrases. Pizza Planet is the restaurant in Toy Story where Buzz and Woody encounter the three-eyed aliens who worship the claw. Paul would go up to people, uh, me for instance, and he would hover a hand over his mouth in a bashful way, and he would say, Alex, say Pizza Planet. And I would say, Pizza Planet. And he would laugh just as hard, just as sincerely, at the age of 16, uh, when we were sophomores in high school, as he had laughed about it when we were nine. One day in high school, one of our teachers yelled at a rambunctious kid named Marvin. Marvin had gotten out of his seat, and the teacher said, Marvin, sit down! For the remaining three years of high school, Marvin, sit down, was a staple of what for Paul was a hilarious and endlessly repeatable repertoire of phrases. In the hallway, between class and high school, for instance, he would come loping up to me, and then he would cover his mouth in a bashful way, and he would lean right up to my ear and go, Alex, say Pizza Planet! And I'd say, Pizza Planet! And he would laugh and laugh, but with, with the sort of strained withholding. Like he was only rounding second base, and he wasn't sure he was making it home just yet. And then he would follow it up cautiously. Alex, Alex, now say, Marvin, sit down. And I would wait a beat, kind of drawing out the suspense. And then I would spit it out real fast. Marvin, sit down! And holy shit. Paul would lose his fucking mind. He would start clapping and stomping, and he would curl his chin down toward his chest, and he would squint his eyes real tight, and he would cackle, and he had this this super charming, shrill, cartoonish kind of hee-hee-hee laugh. It, it, was, it was ridiculous, and it was, like I said, it was super charming and contagious. When we were in third grade, Paul sat next to me for a while. Um, it, it, was it was this codified thing at my elementary school that third grade was the first year where there, were no longer, there would no longer be a bathroom in the classroom. If, you, if the student wanted to use a bathroom, they would have to ask permission, and then they would have to walk to the, to the end of the school alone and use the conventional public restroom that we had. And I, I was not a good or happy student. I was, I was game to leave the room as often as possible. So when the teacher asked if anybody wanted to be Paul's 
quote-unquote helper that year um, and someone to accompany Paul to the bathroom whenever he needed to go, meaning basically that you would just escort him there, wait until he was done, and then escort him back to class. I threw my hand up way high because I was like, fuck yeah, I want to get the hell out of this classroom. And so I became Paul's quote-unquote helper such as it was called, which is a weird label now that I think about it because he really did not need help. I was basically his chauffeur. Paul knew where he was going and where he needed to get back to. He he did, he really did not need to be accompanied. What, what this helper role also entailed is that Paul, for a little while, uh, sat beside me in class, uh, which was fine because we got along, but we were, also, we were also so comfortable together that the teachers kind of took notice and they conferred amongst each other from year to year so that Paul and I ended up sitting close-ish to each other at like either the same big table or the same cluster of desks on through fourth and fifth grade as well. And incidentally, uh, Paul stopped ne- formally needing an escort to the bathroom in fifth grade, but I, he didn't, and again, he didn't technically need it in third or fourth either. If anything, he was almost excessively deferential to the rules. I think the concern was like, if, 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 if any random adult came up to Paul and said, hey, get in this van, Paul was going to get in that van. But anyway, so we're sitting next to each other for a good chunk of third grade, and Paul starts keeping me appraised of his newest phrases. One day in class, it was kind of quiet, because we were all working on an assignment, and Paul goes, Alex, say, yeah. And I said, yeah. And our teacher fucking snapped up and said, Alex, stop that. That's enough. And I said, Paul told me to do it. She said, I don't care if Paul told you to say it. He tells you to say it all day. It's, It's all I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop saying yeah. And then I had to rush with Paul to the bathroom before he pissed his pants. Because normally he only got one yeah out of anyone. Uh, so to get three of them from an adult was just, it was it was a goldmine. So our seating arrangement got switched up every few weeks. But there was, as I mentioned, that one period where Paul sat directly beside me. And every few weeks when I had to take a progress report home or a report card, God forbid, um, I would come to school the following Monday with a resolve that lasted it always, well, maybe four days. And I would be like, all right, guys, turning a new leaf, new quarter, new Alex, straight A's, let's do this. But I was so fucking stupid. I was a terrible student. It was it was hopeless. All these vows I made to reform into some little Einstein. It was like New Year's resolutions to lose weight. I would cling to it for a while and then totally abandon it. Um, and I would sit at my desk just like actively not understanding a fucking thing that the teacher was demonstrating on the board. And then the teacher would get pissed invariably because of the frequency with which I had to go up to her desk and ask her to explain the same thing to me about mitochondria or whatever the fuck. And she'd be like, Alex, why weren't you paying attention? I'd be like, I was, I was paying attention. And she'd say, obviously not because you're up here for a ninth time. And I would be like, no, I swear I was, I'm just really stupid. So I I would have been sent home with, with some terrible progress report or report card. And then come Monday, I would be there at my desk with this new conviction to be a good student. I'd be trying to to figure shit out on my own, and I'd be failing miserably, and because of that, I would be panicking. And in the middle of these hopeless efforts, in the middle of this panic, Paul would say, hey, Alex. Alex, say, hey. And I'd be like, Paul, I don't know if you caught a glimpse of my report card. My mom is going to set my Pokemon cards on fire one by one if I fuck this up. I cannot say, yeah, right now. And so Paul would go quiet. He would leave me alone. He would go quiet for like eight or nine minutes until in some flustered fit, the type to which I'm still quite prone, um, still not understanding fractions or mitochondria or whatever it is we were doing, I'd throw my pencil down and I would sink my face into my hands, dreading how my mom was going to lose her shit about me failing this assignment and then invariably the next assignment and the next one. And while I would be sitting there like that, cradling my stupid eight-year-old face and despairing of the future, Paul would see, hey, my pencil's down, and I wasn't working. And I would hear, hey, Alex. And then I would feel the most delicate tap on my shoulder. Hey, Alex. Alex, 
What, Paul? And then a silence, and then struggling to contain himself. Alex. Alex say, yeah. And then, not that I'm proud of this, I would I would kind of blow up at him. I, I wouldn't yell, because I would have gotten in trouble for yelling, but I would do that lock-jawed, quiet yell you do to somebody when you're trying not to attract attention, and I would be like, Paul, I can't say hell now. It's stupid. Stop. I'm going to get in trouble. But then he would persist and persist until finally I would say, Paul, I'm going to tell the teacher you're not letting me work. And that was it. At the mention of being told on, the specter of discipline, Paul would lunge from his chair and embrace me. This a big squeezing hug. And he would say, no, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. His hug always seemed so desperate and sad. And after that desperate hug, he really would stop for the rest of the day. He wouldn't ask me to, to repeat anything. Um, and then as we were sort of packing up for the final bell, he would kind of come up to me and whisper and be like, hey, I'm sorry. Are you, are you still going to tell the teacher? After high school, I didn't see Paul for a few years until one day in the summer after my senior year of college, I saw him at the movie theater near uh, the movie theater in the area where we had grown up. He was tearing tickets and he was working the concession stand. And we got to chatting for a little bit before my movie. And um, he leaned forward with this big smile at one point, And he said, Alex, what's my name? And I said, Paul. And he said, motherfucker. And I was like, well, Jesus. I, and he goes, no, it's motherfucker Jones. Have you seen the movie Horrible Bosses? Turns out that working at a movie theater had made quite the movie buff of Paul. Uh, he would get into movies for free, and so he went to see everything, just indiscriminate. And apparently, a few years earlier, he had gone to see Horrible Bosses, and he had latched onto the name of Jamie Foxx's character, Motherfucker Jones, and he had appropriated it as his own. And um, I would always laugh at the thought of, you know, that scene in the movie, um, he introduces himself as Motherfucker Jones, and then there's pro when the scene ends, there was probably a 15-second silence, <laughs> and then Paul just parroting into the theater, Motherfucker Jones. <laughs> so Paul reintroduces himself to me as Motherfucker Jones, and so we chatted about what, what movies he had seen lately and uh, what movies I, I was interested in seeing. And then I, I went into my movie. But a few days later, I was back at the movies again. And as I was getting out of my car, coincidentally, Paul pulled up right beside me in a gorgeous red Mustang. And he had some chicken kitchen in a, in a to-go container. And I walked with him to the theater where he was going to... There's a, there's a Starbucks next to the theater and he was going to sit on some cast iron tables outside of the Starbucks and eat his lunch before he had to get back to work. And we were talking as we walked, and he was telling me about his car, on which he was absolutely fixated, and he told me how fast it goes, and then he added in like a hasty, cautionary tone, I never drive at that speed personally, Alex, it isn't safe, and if a cop ever saw you going that fast, you'd be in trouble, and I can't have that. And you know, it's I, I, obviously that's maybe a strained impersonation, but it's only because now... Like, within the context of Thousand Movie Project, only now do I realize that he's kind of always sounded like Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life. You, you said that, what did you say just a minute ago, they, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? But so uh, we went and he sat at the Starbucks table and, and I stood outside with him and we chatted for a little bit while he ate. And then uh, I went into my movie. But before I went into the movie, he asked for my phone number and I gave it to him. And let me add that this was in my dark first post-college year when I was uh, getting drunk at Alehouse every single night and being just a loser of the first order. And I remember that a few nights after running into him at the theater for that second time, Paul called me. And I was at Alehouse, 
I didn't recognize the number, so I answered it. And I was kind of jarred and sobered to hear his voice. And he sounded curious, like almost suspicious. And he asked me where I was, and he asked about all that background noise. I was about to tell him that I was at the alehouse when suddenly I remembered that he still lived in the area. And immediately, I thought of him showing up and seeing me drunk and maybe being weirded out by it. And then, just springing from that, I started thinking of him getting drunk. And what if I had to take care of him? And what if I had to call his parents for him so they could come get him and take him home? And, and how pissed would they be? Would they blame me for him having gotten drunk? Rather than telling him I was at the alehouse, I just told him I was out with friends and that I would talk to him the next day. After we hung up, I got kind of panicky and I paid my tab and walked home. And I was wondering as I was walking, is he going to start calling me every night? Is he going to be as persistent with me now as he was when we were in elementary school? And he wanted me to say, yeah, a dozen times a day. And then I thought, well, shit, does he does he hang out with anyone? Because it was easy for him to strike up conversation uh, when we were in school together. He was surrounded by classmates all the time. But now, as adults, are, are there as many people willing to sort of embrace him into their circle? Is it some kind of, given our past together, is it some kind of responsibility of mine to step in and hang out with him? The fact of the matter was, I didn't want to. Paul was always perfectly pleasant and fine, and we got along well. But we never had anything in common, and now, sure, we were both 22-year-old movie nerds to an extent, but it didn't really seem like enough to float a friendship, and I was just in this hedonistic place, and I don't know. He called me again the next day, and I let it go to voicemail, and uh, he left a message, and then immediately after leaving that message, he sent me a text about his availability, and I told myself while I was at the bar that I would get back to him the next day, and then I pounded my drinks a little harder and quicker. And when he called me again on the third consecutive night, um, I told myself that, well, I was still planning a response for the previous night's phone call, and, and, and so I, I let that one go to voicemail. And the next one. And the next one. I stopped going to the movies, and Paul stopped calling. That was about six years ago. I think about it now and then, and I get quiet and kind of ashamed. <laughs> I've been a fan of Rob Zombie's movies since I was in 8th grade, and still a regular on horror movie message boards, mainly UpcomingHorrorMovies.com. It was around this time that I happened to get friendly with a couple of high school-aged movie buffs as well, and um, I remember they invited me to see Rob Zombie's second movie, The Devil's Rejects, in theaters with them. And it seemed bizarre to me at the time that such a proudly visceral horror movie was being taken somewhat seriously by critics. I remember Roger Ebert talked about it at length on two different episodes of At The Movies, and it seemed to have some real weight to it, to have caused a splash in a way that horror movies seldom do. But so these older friends of mine, whom I had met because one of them was dating my friend Michelle, uh, invited me to see the movie with them at Sunset Place. And so I asked my parents for permission, and my dad said, yeah, sure, I could go to the movies. But then he asked what I was going to see, and I told him. And after a long moment of deliberation, and in a way lower tone than before, he reaffirmed that per permission, warily, but he also stopped looking at me. Whenever he said something to me over the next couple of days, he did so softly, kind of forbiddingly. And uh, he said that he wasn't happy that I would be going and that it worried him to find that I was even interested in watching such movies, which in retrospect is kind of maddeningly manipulative. But at the same time, I can understand it. 
what I have to keep in mind is that uh, this wasn't too long post-Columbine, and everybody was on edge about what their kids were consuming. I remember Eminem and Marilyn Manson sort of bore the brunt of this, and um, I was definitely like a depressive little movie drunk weirdo at that age. So I'm sure it wasn't bizarre for my parents to be so on edge about the kind of stuff I was watching. But yeah, so he said that I was allowed to see it, but then he kind of severed the bloodline for a few days. And I'm very much the sort of person for whom there are few things on earth so noisy, so distractingly noisy as a loved one's scornful silence. And so in a fit of self-loathing, I told my friends that I couldn't make it to the screening. But then I ended up lying to everyone. I, I lied to my dad and said that my friends had canceled the trip to the movies, and I lied to my friends and said that my dad had forbidden me from going. I, I, and I, I still have no idea why I took that course of action. But anyway, I didn't end up seeing The Devil's Rejects for another couple years, at which point I'd already caught glimpses of Rob Zombie's first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, on cable. And when I finally saw The Devil's Rejects and seeing it within the context of its batshit and tonally estranged prequel, it completely blew my mind. I bought The Devil's Rejects DVD in secret from the Sam Goody store at Dayland Mall, back when it was right across from the Cheesecake Factory where, a dozen years later, I would work for nine bleak months as a host. Everything was obscenely overpriced at Sam Goody, but in what I again presumed to be a staple of the post-Columbine years, and also the fact that I looked really young, it was pretty hard to find a place that would sell you an R-rated DVD if you were underage. But the guys who worked at Sam Goody were the equivalent of what I guess would be the people who work at a vinyl store today. They wore facial hair in subversive shapes, and they had lots of beads on their wrists, and they weren't likely to ask a kid for his ID just because he wanted to legally buy what everyone felt was a really cool indie horror movie anyways. The horror section, incidentally, at Sam Goody was shelved literally two paces away from the softcore porn that they sold in cumbersome six-movie box sets with lots of, like, soft-focus 80s-looking cover art. It also, it all kind of looked very Jane Fonda, like very jazzercise. Uh, when I got out of the store, I tucked the Devil's Rejects DVD into the back of my waistband, and I pulled my shirt over it. And then I went and met my mom in the food court, sat with a weirdly perfect posture all through lunch, and then all through the drive home for fear of crushing the DVD box. I probably looked like I was smuggling the movie up my ass. But so I've always had a soft spot for Zombie's work, because uh, whenever I see something that he's made, I think about all the heartache and effort that went into watching his stuff when I was a kid. And as a result, I've followed his career pretty pretty closely up until just the past couple years. Even if I'm not a fan of something that he's made, I'm always interested in Rob Zombie himself as a filmmaker. And um, more than that, as an interview subject, he's if you've ever seen him, he's super laid back and clear-headed and articulate, and there's a pretty robust collection of uncensored, long-form interviews with him online where he talks about horror and, and why some movies work and others don't. Here, here's an excerpt, actually, from what I think is the best of those interviews. He's talking here with the filmmaker Mick Garris on Garris's podcast called Postmortem, which I highly recommend especially to horror fans. Garris himself has worked closely with Stephen King to adapt both The Stand and The Shining for television. Uh, he's a filmmaker who just released an anthology film called um, Nightmare Cinema. He's also just a really cool, laid-back guy. Um, it took me a while to get in touch with him, but when I finally did, he was quick to give me permission to excerpt this episode of Postmortem on Thousand Movie Project. So uh, thanks to Mick Garris, and well, here's a clip. I don't know. We were, I was talking about that today with somebody. Just, it's like if the movie has some sort of bizarre soul. Yeah, it has its own personality. It, it'll live on. Because there's tons of movies that I love that I, I don't know if they're technically good, but there's something special about it because the person who's making it... I mean, I think I always use... It's, a, it's an obvious example, but even something like Plan 9 from Outer Space. 
there's some bizarre passion to the process that he put into making that film that it's better than some $200 million cold blockbuster. You watch it and it entertains you. Yeah, and there's just something about it. I mean, is it technically, no, but that's not the point. So yeah, the reason I'm bringing up Rob Zombie is because he's got a new movie coming out in 2019 called Three From Hell. It's the sequel 15 years later to The Devil's Rejects. Zombie was remarkably discreet about the writing and the casting and the pre-production of Three From Hell. He managed to keep the whole thing under wraps until day one of production, when he surprised his Instagram followers by posting a photo from the set. And he's been posting photos just like it for the better part of a year now. From the set, from the editing room, from the road, it's been a long, grinding tease. And finally, a few weeks ago, Zombie began a seven-day countdown on Instagram leading up to the release of Three From Hell's teaser trailer. And the announcement of that forthcoming release was met with good vibes. Despite some rocky reception amongst critics and fans alike for Zombie's past few movies, it seems that people were pretty psyched for this. There was there was goodwill in the air. There was optimism. And then the teaser dropped, and that attitude changed. Mango had woken me up at 6 a.m. on the day that the Three From Hell teaser landed, and after taking him for a quick walk, I came back up. I came back upstairs, flopped onto the couch, and I started browsing the movie news that had broken overnight, like I always do, and I found that the trailer had literally just been released. And so I watched it, excited, and I was kind of underwhelmed, but not necessarily in a bad way. It's just that Rob Zombie had released a teaser that was exactly that. It was a tease, kind of similar to what Tarantino did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we get a a few quick flashes of action from this current movie. We see uh, the faces of familiar characters, we see guns going off and people screaming, and then it cuts to the title card that says, Coming soon. No release date, no word about whether it's going to go to theaters or video on demand, just coming soon. I didn't really know what to make of the trailer at the time, but having found the trailer so early in the morning, I posted it on Reddit and turned out to be the first one to do so. And so because it was the first post with that trailer, um, for the rest of the day, my phone was buzzing with comments from people's hot takes on the trailer. And those hot takes were overwhelmingly negative, which I think had a lot to do with the build-up. I think it was more a resentment of the trailer's coyness uh, that got people sort of projecting their anger onto the movie, a movie whose production we've been privy to for over a year now, but about which we still somehow know virtually nothing. It got me thinking about how movies are marketed and about the difference between titillation and surprise. Tarantino's marketing people with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood seemed to straddle that line really well. What Tarantino was worried about was protecting the movie's ending, and so he was vague with the movie up until a couple months before its release. And then he really started sharing stills and clips, shared the soundtrack, some posters. Rob Zombie, in his effort to preserve some vital story element, seems to be hell-bent on revealing as little as possible. Now, that story element that he appears to be trying to conceal also seems pretty obvious. What I think that story element is, and I have no way of knowing this with any sort of authority, I'm just guessing, is that one of the eponymous three, one of the devil's rejects, is probably going to die in the first act, and he's going to get replaced by a younger actor. There are a few factors that give that impression, and if it is the case, then I can see why Rob Zombie would want to be so secretive about it. Also, I'm not sure Three From Hell is beholden to a business model where such secrets are really important. I suspect that Rob Zombie, kind of like Kevin Smith, is an indie filmmaker with a pre-existing and loyal fan base to whom this movie will be specifically marketed. No matter what you reveal, no matter what you withhold, they're going to show up. All of those people's dollars put together is probably the only thing that this production is aiming for. And, I suspect, 
there's some hope that the movie is good enough that those fans will reel their friends into it, word of mouth will get around, people who don't normally flirt with this genre or this filmmaker will take a chance on it. So I can see and totally understand how that initial viewer response to the trailer was so hostile, people getting impatient with all the secrecy, but at the same time, I can see why it doesn't really matter to Rob Zombie if he makes his audience angry about this. It doesn't really matter to Rob Zombie if he makes a general audience upset with his trailer, because the general audience is not what he's chasing, and I think he's learned how to not care. I think Rob Zombie is a good filmmaker. His first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, is like a proud kind of mess. It's hyper-violent and chaotic and, a word I rarely get to use, phantasmagoric. It's all flashy, crazy, colorsome chaos. Um, and it's very much influenced by the montage aesthetic that Zombie had dabbled in while making music videos. But there are glimpses in that first movie. Little set pieces like the holdup of Captain Spaulding in the first act, uh, the inquiry of a couple cops later on, and certain elements of that batshit crazy third act where you can see that Rob Zombie is interested in striving for, and, and is probably capable of achieving, some, some kind of storytelling where shock and flashiness are not the point. But there's also a vibe of, like, protective silliness. Like, like the overweight kid who can sort of intuit that silliness and funniness will be his social gateway toward being taken seriously. There's an interesting episode of, of Dick Cavett from the 70s, where he's interviewing Woody Allen, and Alan at the time, apart from being a stand-up comic and a filmmaker, he also played the clarinet. And he went on to form a band and, and play in that band for many years. And on this particular episode of Dick Cavett, on which Alan is appearing as the main guest, Dick Cavett asks him, in the course of the interview, if he wouldn't mind taking out his clarinet and just riffing on it for a while. And Woody Allen agrees. He whips out his clarinet, starts playing, and he appears to be doing a good job. I've got no ear for music, but it seems like he's carrying a tune and everything. But then something happens that's hard to describe, some subtle shift in the air. There's something about his pauses suddenly, and the way that his eyes are darting around. Suddenly what began as an earnest performance with the clarinet turns into a comedy routine. The whole audience is laughing as he stops and starts and darts his eyes around and makes little waves of his eyebrows. The segment is hilarious. But the legs get cut out from under all that humor just a few moments later when Alan, in a tone that feels like a bit of a reproach to both the audience and himself, says that this kind of thing happens to him a lot, his inadvertent slipping into a comedy bit. He says that he didn't intend for his clarinet performance to be funny, but then when the audience started interpreting it as comedic, because comedy is the only thing they associate him with, he just went along with it. It sounded like some kind of coping mechanism. Artists and artists who venture from one medium to another, even even one genre to another, they'll often talk about an audience reacting to that shift with scorn, telling them basically to get back in their box. Stop trying to be serious if you're a comedian. Stop trying to be a comedian if you're serious. Stop trying to be a musician if you're an actor, and so on. And so I guess when people start laughing at Alan's earnest performance on the clarinet, it's safer for him to just go along with it, as though he'd meant for this to be a joke all along, rather than just keep plowing through the set with that straight, earnest face. It's safer for his self-esteem. The audience starts laughing, so you go along with acting like laughter is what you were aiming for. And you can get the vibe, while watching Rob Zombie's first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, that this is a movie made by somebody with a newcomer's jitters. Like, he's maybe a little nervous that people are going to say, Oh, the music man made a movie! And so he's going to preempt their mockery, by mocking himself. Here he is talking about it with Mick Garris on the Postmortem podcast. Yeah, with Corpses was kind of like, I didn't know enough 
you know, when you just don't have the knowledge to really go from, okay, this is what I see in my head, let me get it on film. You know, everything seemed like a compromise, it wasn't right. And quickly I knew the tone of that movie had become kind of goofy. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of went with it. Yeah. I knew it wasn't, but it wasn't really what I had set out to do originally. A bunch of shit ensues with the production of House of a Thousand Corpses. Studios drop it and pick it up and drop it again. He's got, he's got to finish it with zero budget, just shooting some filler scenes in his own house. Uh, the, the whole fiasco with House of a Thousand Corpses seems to embolden him to make a movie that says, fuck you. And so he follows corpses with The Devil's Rejects, which, again, is an outstanding movie. It's one of the best American horror movies of the past 20 years. And I'm probably going to talk about it a little bit more when we get closer to September and the release of Three from Hell. Devil's Rejects is about three of the serial killers from House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, one is Otis, played by Bill Mosley, who's got another iconic horror movie role under his belt. He plays Leatherface's little brother in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is another bizarrely wonderful entry in the genre. D Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 culminates in a chainsaw sword fight between a cowboy sheriff, played by Dennis Hopper, and the series cannibalistic villain Leatherface, who for some reason is wearing an undersized black suit and tie during this chainsaw sword fight. And then after Bill Mosley, there's Captain Spaulding, who's played by Sp by Sid Haig. And finally, there's Baby, who's played by Sherry Moon Zombie. And in, in The Devil's Rejects, they're on the run after a police raid of their massive house, which is the, the eponymous house of 1,000 corpses. And then they just sort of fuck shit up and kill people on, the, on their way up the road toward Safer Haven. Anyway... After that movie, Rob Zombie got a chance to make to remake John Carpenter's Halloween, and as he explains to Mick Garris, his version was kind of two pictures in one. You know, this is a pretty thin. I mean, I think it's a brilliant movie. So whenever I discuss it, people think I'm criticizing it, but I'm not. I mean, I love the movie, and I've always loved the movie. But I thought, like, oh, it's kind of like a. There's not a lot to it. It's very simple. And the idea I pitched to Weinstein that they didn't go for was I wanted to make the first film just young Michael Myers. Hmm and maybe then do a little bit of him as an adult, and he breaks out, and that's where the movie ends. Mm -hmm. And then have maybe the second film be more of some of John Carpenter's movie. So were you hoping to do a sequel uh, from well, the beginning? Well, I wanted to do it Would like Harry agree? Potter style, shoot them both at the same time, oh. so that, you know, I thought, okay, we, maybe, because that was the other, I'm very, like, thrifty with money, and every time you make a movie, you go, God, it's the setup and the breakdown, this and that, that's all the cost, I mean. Mm. So I thought, why don't we just shoot two for the price of one? Mm -hmm. I couldn't get anyone on board with that idea. So I essentially, if, if you watch my remake, it's almost like two movies shoved to one. It's one movie that suddenly becomes another movie. After making Halloween, which was a big success, Rob Zombie made the mandatory sequel, Halloween 2, about which he said that he basically just wanted to do something weird. And so that's what he did, and the critical reception wasn't great, but the box office was pretty solid. After Halloween, um, Rob Zombie did an animated movie called The Haunted World of El Superbisto, and following that, he returned to feature filmmaking with The Lords of Salem. Lords of Salem is an expressionist movie about witches, uh, and it's got to tons of beautiful, hideous, hypnotic imagery that I think reflects, for this later part of Zombie's career, the conclusion of a similar arc to what we saw with the first two movies. Remember, I had that theory that... House of a Th Thousand Corpses shows some nervousness about his aptitude as a filmmaker, and then something about its chaotic aftermath made him say "fuck it," and then he sort of went—he sort of went crazy with Devil's Rejects, and he did his own movie. Well, I think that with Halloween too, 
Zombie was beginning to show an interest in expressionist filmmaking, which, by the way, expressionist filmmaking is when the movie looks weird in order to reflect elements of its character's psyche or the theme of the movie. Tim Burton is kind of a loose but modern example of expressionist filmmaking, like consider the tall slanted staircases that are totally impractical, but nonetheless they work to communicate something about the mood of the picture. But feeling something like that same old reticence to go all in on something, he couched, Rob Zombie couched his expressionist ambitions in the story of Michael Myers, which is why Halloween 2 has all this spacey, symbolic, abstract, dream sequence stuff. And like with House of a Thousand Corpses, it wasn't received very well. Um, he was told, People told him to basically get back in your box, and so he said, fuck it. And then he went ham on that same expressionist impulse with his next movie, Lords of Salem, which I really like. I, I think it's a close run-up to Devil's Rejects as Rob Zombie's best movie. And I was surprised to find in the Reddit thread responding to this teaser for Three From Hell that Lords of Salem is what most people are deriding as evidence of Rob Zombie being some kind of hack filmmaker. People really hate that movie. I don't know why. What interests me overall about Zombie's body of work is that he seems to be repeatedly establishing a kind of artistic insecurity, and then he confronts it. He overcomes it. I think we see it happen three times. It first manifests in that progression from playfulness to sincerity that we saw in House of a Thousand Corpses to Devil's Rejects. But I think that his original Halloween remake manifests some insecurity in the way that, as he said in that Garris interview, Rob Zombie was trying to basically pack two movies into one. He wanted to make a comprehensive portrait of, Mike, of Michael Myers' adolescence, of everything that made him into the monster that he became. But then Rob Zombie also wanted to show an unprecedentedly brutal version of Myers' famous killing spree on Halloween night. So I haven't seen Rob Zombie's most recent movie, which is called 31, mainly because of the, the premise of some people trying to survive a theme park full of serial killers didn't interest me, but I plan on checking it out before I go to see Three From Hell, because as much as I want to see Three From Hell just to know how he concludes the trilogy, I think what most intrigues me is the idea of how his latest movie will manifest a response to the failure of his previous movie. I'm interested to see how, through his work, this filmmaker is conversing with himself, movie to movie, in order to keep growing. You can't make anybody happy, that seems to be the key. <laughs> the secret is to make the movie you want to make. That, yeah, that's that's so true, because that was the one thing, um, I remember with Devil's Rejects, when it was done, House of a Thousand Corpses was a fucking mess, so I never knew how I felt, but Rejects, I felt like, when it was done, me and the editor, I was like, I love this movie. I don't care what anyone says, I love it, nothing's gonna change my opinion. Because it was the only time, that was the only movie I ever was 100% free to do whatever I wanted. there goes another episode. I actually recorded this episode um, well over a month ago. I don't know why I just sort of fell out of schedule with, with editing it. Um, as I went into August, which I had the entire month off from work, I'd set myself this goal of watching um, 50 movies off of the list, and that would have brought me up and just slightly past the 500 mark. I ended up only watching 40 movies, but it's still, I mean, it took a lot of time. And apart from that, I was trying to be really diligent about uploading one or two pieces of writing every single day to the website. And then toward the end of the month, there was this whole thing with Hurricane Dorian, which disrupted shit. But I think another thing that held this episode up for so long is that I felt kind of what I'm feeling now as I'm done editing it and listening to the whole thing, which is that this is like the first 
full episode that I've done since I kind of rebooted the podcast where I don't think it's very good. And also, I, I don't know, now, that that story about Paul, the kid that I, I grew up with who had the learning disability, and, um, you know, I fell out of touch with him for the duration of college, and then I started seeing him at that uh, movie theater near where we grew up. I It's it's personal, and it feels weird. Like, if it's one of those anecdotes where, I don't know, like, it, he was such a staple of, like, all, all, all the social stuff that I remember from growing up. Um, you know, he he was just always around, and he was always very much himself, always very sweet, never gave me any reason to dislike him, but for the fact that, you know, he could be annoying sometimes, but that wasn't in his control. And then here I am, seeing him out in the world as an adult. We share a past, and... But I start wondering, like, is could you call that past a friendship? Were we just acquaintances? And I wonder, like, what is owed to the bonds that you share with the people you grew up with? I think I mentioned something in, I don't know if it was this episode or a previous one, but there is um, a guy named Alex who went, who went to high school with me, and he's homeless now, and he was, it's so weird, for like, last year he w- was living on the streets over near my job, which is 20 miles away from my apartment, and now suddenly he's living on the streets right around my apartment, and he doesn't really know me. I only knew him because he was on the football team, and he was a good football player, and he had a reputation as such, but he did poorly academically. And so I recognize him. He doesn't recognize me, and he also has a learning disability, and he's always begging for money, and um, yeah, I just there, there's something about the fact that I grew up kind of with this guy that I feel like I'm supposed to do something, but I don't know what I would do. And also, I... I, I, I think that this kind of, I think, completes a trilogy of, of podcasts where I sort of profile a homeless person in in, um, in my area. But I'm, I've been wondering lately, like, why am I so fixated on all these homeless people? And um, now, and not, but it's not just the homeless, it's the homeless who also happen to be, me- happen to be mentally ill. And I don't know, I, I guess, it's, and I think it's something about, like, encountering them prompts all these questions about social obligation and um, people being left behind. I, I don't know. I still can't really put my finger on it. Maybe maybe that's what I should be. You know, I'm so consumed with the, uh, the idea of making the podcast, like, artful and very measured and disciplined, and I want it to be to move along in a swift clip, whatever. But maybe, you know, I should be focusing on sort of a therapeutic aspect where, okay, yeah, go ahead and write about what you want. Try to make it engaging. Try to make it interesting and funny. But at the same time, allow myself to to use it as, as a platform for probing, like, why am I so, why am I so obsessed with these figures? As opposed to just pursuing the obsession and trying to, you know, impose it upon you or make it, or make it um, you know, contagious. But yeah, I don't I don't feel particularly good about this episode for some reason, and I think it's because of the Rob Zombie thing. I'm super grateful to Mick Garris that he like responded to me finally and and um, was super gracious about letting me use um, audio from his interview with Rob Zombie. And I had a great time, you know, mixing it and um, and writing it. But I I guess I'm wondering if maybe these film essays just don't really lend well to the podcast. I think. There was a part of me that wanted to, like, this would be cool to create a lore for the podcast of, like, oh, the lost episode. Just don't post it. Keep the fully edited thing on my computer. Maybe I'll still do that. Keep the fully edited thing on my computer and just mention the fact that there is from, what the fuck, I guess it was July of 2019, an episode that, I, a full episode that I made and just never posted. But what if some of these stories end up, like, revealing things about me that other, that, like, listeners might find repugnant? 
like the fact that Paul was calling me and saying like he wanted to hang out and I just I just never called him back. I actually I stopped going to the I started going to a different movie theater just to avoid him. And like what was that about? Was I is it that I was dreading the prospects of hanging out with him and trying to like force conversation for an entire evening because I was definitely thinking too about his parents and like I don't know what that what that was. I think it was just kind of it, there, a part of it was like slippery slope thinking where I was like, oh, does he have any other friends? And if not, and I go out and I get a drink with him, is he going to be like wanting to go out all the time? And I want, but is that is that is that a, is that a fucked up way of thinking about this kind of thing? I don't know. Anyways, uh, as for the project thing, I did watch 40 movies and um, it felt really cool. I did kind of burn out toward the end. Um, Although there was a bunch of other personal shit that I'll get into in the next episode. I think I'll be releasing the two episodes back to back. Um, That I, yeah, I kind of burned out. And now it is the 14th of September and I have not watched a single movie from the list this month. Um, My hope, I don't know if I'm deluding myself, is that I'll be able to watch at least 15 before the end of the month. Which means I'm going to have to sort of double down and get into the uh, sort of the same-ish regimen that I was able to maintain for most of July, for the, almost the entirety of July. Anyways, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, so, look, thanks for listening. Sorry if this episode was a disappointment uh, to you as it was to me. Um, anyways, I'm off. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.